My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Woodbury. Welcome back to Transmissions. My guest this week on the show is a return one, Mitch Horowitz. Perhaps you've heard him on Coast to Coast AM or the Duncan Trussell Family Hour, or maybe you've heard him right here on Transmissions. Mitch was the guest on one of my favorite episodes of this season earlier in 2022. And with the twin occasions of his new book, Daydream Believer, Unlocking the Ultimate Power of Your Mind, which is out now, and the forthcoming essay collection, Uncertain Places Essays on Occult and Outsider Experiences, which is out October 18th, I thought it would be great to have him back on for a return conversation. I really enjoy engaging with Mitch's work. I find it challenging, insightful, and compelling, and speaking with him is always a pleasure. Both of these new books are great too. Daydream Believer, yes, it's named for uh, the monkey song. You'll hear more about that in a second. Focuses mostly on the subject of uh, psychical research, uh, telepathy, psi, uh, extrasensory perception, that sort of thing. Uh, but it also really thoughtfully examines some of the pitfalls that Aquarian or New Age thinkers sometimes stumble into. Meanwhile, over in Uncertain Places, he writes essays about UFOs, Bigfoot, Gnosticism, uh, the historical roots of the Illuminati conspiracy theory, and many other fascinating topics. And there's also a great uncut version of his David Lynch interview in that one. So uh, I was really excited to have Mitch on to talk about all of this and a lot more. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of talk about Satanism in this one. I think you're going to enjoy it. Uh, I definitely appreciate you being here with us on Transmissions, and without further delay, let's get into it. Here's my conversation with Mitch Horowitz. Thanks so much for tuning in. Well, yeah, thanks so much for taking the time to hang out on Transmissions, Mitch. It's always it's absolutely so great, so great to have you back. Uh, we haven't done a lot of repeat guests this season, but I have been wanting to talk with you more since the last time, so I'm so glad that we're able to do so. It's a pleasure. I love it, and I love the audience. I mean, your listeners who I hear from are are just, they're so relevant and together and interesting to hear from, and I really appreciate that, too. Oh, that's great to hear. Uh, absolutely. I, I wanted to start off by asking, uh, of course, how you're doing, but also what you have been listening to lately. Oh, yeah. Well... Uh, believe it or not, I've been on this project of listening to Bob Dylan's oeuvre, going back you know, to his first album, up through his most recent stuff. Yeah. And I think for some reason I got turned on to it because I was reading this uh, biography of the journalist Hunter Thompson <clears throat> called High White Notes. And uh, 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 the, the writer made reference to Thompson referring to listening to Bob Dylan's third album, The Times They Are a Changin', and saying something to the effect of he's brilliant and he's mean as a snake and he's just incredible. And so uh, that just 
somehow ignited in me this interest in going back to that album. And I believe it was recorded around 1963, and I listened to it, and I was just so thoroughly blown away. It's one of these things where it's like passing by a building that you've passed by every day on the way to work for your entire sure. adult life, but suddenly seeing it for the first time. And it just moved me to go back to Dylan's earliest material. And I'm just so amazed, not only by his artistry, but by what happens when you have that perfect marriage of artists to the times that he or she is living in. Like, I'm just listening to these songs from Dylan's first few, few albums, because that's where I am in my little project. Right. And they simply couldn't be done today. You know, they couldn't be done today. And they couldn't have been done 10 years hence. They couldn't have been done 10 years earlier. They were just right for that time. And the magic is when you listen to an anthem like Blowing in the Wind, it feels like it's always been there. You, yeah. you simply can't imagine that this has never not been there, like some sort of a mountain range with which we're all familiar. And yet it, it grew from this perfect marriage of, of a genius and just that impeccable timing. Yeah. And it, it says in the Tao Te Ching, the ancient Chinese ethical work, timing is everything. That's where that expression comes from. And you realize the depths and the folds of those familiar expressions sometimes. You know, it's funny, I think back to like some of the prison recordings that Johnny Cash made mid-60s, late-60s. Those, again, same thing. Ten years earlier, they couldn't have been done. You know, the culture wasn't ready for them. And ten years later, Johnny Cash could no longer relate to the prison population. So it just right. was that perfect moment. And it's art. It has posterity. And, and it couldn't be repeated. That's so cool. You know, I definitely think I just recently did an interview for another project I do called Wastoids with uh, Jan Uhelski, who's this legendary writer, wrote for Cream magazine back in the day. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. And she was talking a little bit about that. And she was like, you know, there's a we <laughs> we were talking about the band Kiss and she mm -hmm. was like they they were perfect for their time. They They arrived at a time where there needed to be something like that, something that was like more conceptual, more theatrical, something to fit that post peace and love era kind of zeitgeist. Yes. And she said yes. something to me that really stuck with me. She was like, you know, artists, our artists are rock stars. She used the term rock stars, even though maybe that's slightly anachronistic in terms of the way most people talk about pop figures today. But she was like, these rock stars are tapped into something related to their time. And, uh, and there's something kind of we were talking about what makes somebody want to write about music or discuss it to the length that we do, you know, and, and she was like, well, you want to honor that thing that they are a, they're a part of how we tell the story of that time. And, and yeah, I, th yes. I think you're exactly yes. right. You know, it's funny that you mentioned Kiss. I, I'm, I'm a big Kiss fan. And in fact, uh Kiss was the last stadium concert I went to before the lockdown. Oh, sure, I sure. Saw them here in Brooklyn with my partner Jacqueline Castell at the Barclays Center uh, in downtown Brooklyn just a few months before lockdown. And I love the band enormously. And, you know, apropos of what you were saying about them reflecting their times, I was reading. Peter Chris's uh, autobiography, which was written with uh, a writer named, you probably know, named Larry Ratso Sloman. And I like Sloman as a writer very, very much. And I think because of Sloman's presence, there was more disclosure in the book culturally in terms of where these guys got the ideas, the gestation behind all this. Sure. And, you know, it's very interesting, you know, like Peter was saying, okay, 
you know, we were aware of the New York Dolls and and we loved them. Uh, we were obviously aware of glam and and we loved glam, but that wasn't really us. We were also very aware, all four of them being New Yorkers, of the gay leather scene in the West Village. I mean, today the West Village is sort of, you know, a, a, a much more sanitized place than it was, sure. you know, back in the day. And he said, you know, what we wanted to do was we wanted to take the dolls, we wanted to take the gay leather scene from the village and put it on an arena scale. And that was our thinking at that time. And that's where the look came from. And then, you know, the rock chords and everything came from Bowie and came from glam rock and so forth. And it was just so interesting because, again, it was one of these instances in time that that never could have been repeated. And weirdly enough, um, the R&B musician uh, Rick James made the comment that very shortly after that, he went to a Kiss concert in a club somewhere. I mean, the band really hadn't broke out yet. Yeah. And he saw their look and he said that was exactly the look that I was after. You know, it was sort of glam. It was space age. It was undefined. It didn't it didn't look like Led Zeppelin. It didn't look like the Who. It didn't look like the Beatles. That's and, right. And Rick James didn't see himself as any of those people. And suddenly he saw Kiss and he said something clicked. And it's just fascinating because... Um, you can just, it, it takes so long sometimes to do the forensics, but you look back and you realize, again, timing is everything. Just that magical moment where a, a performer and a certain cultural epoch, cultural look, just it all comes together. Yeah, yeah. Well, you have been you have been kind enough to send me both of your 2022 books, uh, Daydream Believer and Uncertain Places. Uh, mm -hmm. And so thank you for that. Uh, talking about the music sort of side of things obviously daydream believer named for uh a song made famous by the monkeys i'm gonna just venture a guess that most sort of metaphysical uh occult types you know um naming your your book after a song best known by the monkeys you know that's a that's a move that's a cool move in my opinion can you tell me a little bit about your sort of relationship with the music of of the monkeys? Oh, of course. I, I've always, first of all, had a very strange and unusual relationship with the band. I think in, in one of my books, maybe it's The Miracle Club, and I repeat the story in Daydream Believer just because it seemed pertinent. Um, there was one summer where I started to get into the monkeys in a big way, and I was listening to their music, and I was reading biographies of the band, and I was consuming everything that I possibly could, and I had no idea where any of this was coming from. and. Then out of the blue, and I really do mean out of the blue, I was just sitting on my sofa one day. I was taking this sabbatical. Our company had been acquired, our publishing company had been acquired by a new company and, and they sort of like, you know, enforced sabbaticals on you. It's this enforced enlightenment. So I got the impression that they really wanted me to take a sabbatical. So I took one and I had reached an interval in a project and I was sitting around not really knowing what to do. And out of the blue, I was contacted by an editor from the Washington Post saying that Mike Nesmith from the Monkees had just published his autobiography, a book called Infinite Tuesday. And was I aware that Nesmith was into Christian science? And I said, no. And did I know him? And I said, no. And he said, well, would you like to review the thing? And I, I reviewed it, enjoyed it enormously. And Infinite Tuesday was Nesmith's way of referring to what I suppose I call a time collapse, this this, this non-linear quality of reality that we run into all the time, we'll call it deja vu or synchronicity or um, 
what's the other word that people use? Uh, deja vu, synchronicity, coincidence, mm -hmm. you know, what, whatever, meaningful coincidence, what have you. Um, but we get the impression that there's something purposeful behind it all. And I had the weirdest experience of being asked to review this book, having for months with no apparent antecedent been involving myself in the monkey's music. And I've, I've had other episodes like that with uh, that band. And um, I, I not long ago met the one surviving monkey, Mickey Dolans, who was very nice. I ran into him standing alone at an airport in uh, Kansas City. And anyway, I, I selected the title Daydream Believer not only because it's a song that I love and not only because of what it implies about the ideals of individual belief, but because it's also in actuality a very somber song. It's not this kind of fairy tale love song that it 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 kind of has a customary reputation as the man who who wrote the song John Stewart was a singer songwriter who had been part of the Kingston trio and Stewart who's now dead told a story that RCA Records actually changed a pivotal word in the song uh, in the Monkees version Davy sings now you know how happy I can be but in Stewart's original version uh, the lyric is, now you know how funky I can be. And by funky, he didn't mean uh, get down and boogie. He meant um, kind of rancid or unwashed or, uh, you know, that, that that's what the term means in its original uh, sure. etymology. And, and he said his intention was to talk about how love, fairy tale love, takes hits over the years. So it was one lover saying to another, well, now that we're together, you know, you kind of see me in terms of what I look like in the morning, you That's know, right. so to speak. And now you know how funky I can be. And RCA didn't want Davy singing that. So they said, no, we're changing it to happy. And it changed the tenor of the song, although you still hear that more somber undercurrent. So I chose that title both because of its ideals and also because of its melancholy, because my contention is that mind metaphysics, mind causation, things to which I'm very deeply dedicated, they are real, they are actual, but they don't give you, nor should you use them to pursue this life of limitless bliss or Edenic monotony. It's nothing like that at all. You're going to deal with all the, the things in life that buffet us, that challenge us, that cause us friction, that cause us sorrow. Yeah. But there will be a greater self-direction. I, I have no question of that. And and the the song uh, title and the song itself captures that ethos. So I, I write about that in the book. You know, there's there are a lot of things uh, about your work that I'm drawn to and that I find very stimulating and uh, and helpful. You know, uh, one of my favorite things about specifically both of these books uh, that you're putting out this year is is you know, you write about depression, you write about suffering, you write about these things that uh, very, very often uh, New Agers have a, a bad tendency to to tiptoe around the subjects or evade them in some, some way or another. I, I'm painting with a broad brush for the sake of our conversation. Of course, there are many New Agers who don't do this at all, you know, but... But there is that sort of, um, you write at one point, the question of suffering ought to haunt people like me mm -hmm. who subscribe to New Thought, you know? Yes, yes. And to me, there's, a, there's a, an honesty and a, a bluntness to that, to that uh, topic that it really does feel like it's necessary uh, to, to 
to to discuss the uh you know we we all want or i want or whoever you know you want enlightenment and you want it to stick and you don't want to fall into the whatever doldrums but but you do inevitably that is part of life it's part of the polarity of life and so i'm really excited that you were able to approach suffering and discuss you know what is this what's happening what are we doing what this is part of our existence you know what i mean yeah and i appreciate that very much i you know s several years ago i was inspired in, in the negative in a certain sense by uh an author who i was interviewing I, I don't frequently interview people i don't consider myself a good interviewer but several years ago i was doing an interview project and i was talking to a best-selling very very widely known new age author and it was somebody who i had some personal familiarity with from outer life and when this author stepped in front of the microphone and we were in this studio together um he would hold forth with these 15 minute long very idealized responses to every question that i put to him and the kind of new age template frankly that we've all heard before you know you, you have to get to a place of non-attachment you have to ask yourself who is the thinker behind the thoughts you have to get to a place of self-observation and we've all heard these things sure and what I really wanted to ask him and didn't at the time because I felt it would have been a, a violation of privacy is that I knew just because we were loose colleagues in the publishing industry that this is a person who uh, suffers from bouts of rage in his life and something might go wrong professionally and he he gets enraged and he gets very upset and I'm I'm no better but I thought to myself how much more alive and attractive and relevant and and pertinent would this conversation be it would be an authentic exchange not only between me and the subject but between me the subject and and the listeners it would be an authentic exchange if he started with the acknowledgement of actually being unable to do any of these things sure and that to me is where the magic is where we we say to ourselves well you know here are the well-known compass points that we can all recite and define and pull out our little webster's dictionary of mystical terms and define realization and enlightenment and this that and the other thing but when faced with stress not while i'm sitting in a chair with my belly full and the air conditioning working and the wi-fi working but when faced with stress do those compass points orient me or do I get lost? And I want the truth. And so who do I go to for the truth other than myself? So I tried to be very revealing in the book and I tried to be very, very exposing in the book because I do believe that the mind power gambit is, is right. I do believe that thoughts are causative. We also exist under many different, or we experience many different laws and forces. Mind power is not the only game in town, and I can't say that frequently enough. But the fact is, I do think it's one tool among others that exists that's real, that has an extra physical dimension, and that can make a really directed difference in someone's life and can bring that person into more satisfying experiences. It's not some 
immunological thing where you no longer experience pain and tragedy and suffering and you know doubt or what have you but it is a tool that we simply don't use and haven't been brought up to use but i want to wield that tool with as much honesty as i am capable of bringing to the page so that's what i really try to do in daydream believer yeah yeah I want to talk a little bit more about Daydream Believer, but I also want to talk about, there's an essay from, um, I want to talk about your essay, Strange Fire, from the other book, From Uncertain Places, where mm-hmm. something that I, I love, you, you opened that book discussing, uh, you know, Bigfoot, leprechauns, flying saucers, these yeah. these icons <laughs> of the weird. Uh, <laughs> on one hand, I'm tempted to just keep talking about suffering. I, uh, <laughs> I, I'm admitting this out loud, but the other thing is we all are plenty well acquainted with it lately. So I don't want to, uh, you know, before we, before we move into that other topic. Yeah. I do want to note that we, we, we can suffer <laughs> and believe in leprechauns. We, That's yeah, possible. Uh, no, Sorry. absolutely. You know, that actually gets to the overall point. Part of what I think is, is fascinating about that essay in particular is the way I'm, I'm curious to hear you expound on. What is it that remaining open to these unknowns, you know, sort of allows us because you're, you're big on practicality. You're you're a toolkit mm-hmm. guy. You want to know what how to use these technologies, essentially these these methods, these these, you know, uh, potentially extra physical, you know, uh, uh, f- faculties, you know, you want to use those things to live a good life an expressive life. So what is it about, you know, remaining open to the to the far out, to the mystical, to the to the quote unquote woo woo? You know, how can that help a person deal with normal stuff, I guess, is what I'm what I'm curious about. Right. Well, it pokes holes in the straight story and it suggests to us that there's more to life and hence more to our personas than we might realize. And that gives us possibilities, I think. It also faces us with challenges. You know, someone once said to me that people think they're going to have some mystical experience and they'll be happier. But consider if you have a mystical experience and become a more sensitive individual, you're also going to experience greater empathy and greater greater realization of the pain that other people around you are going through so is that that doesn't necessarily translate into into happiness although that starts to challenge what our definitions of happiness are i mean maybe being at home in oneself maybe feeling a sense of agency is is happiness but i I mean, these phenomena, I've never been somebody who chases after phenomena. Uh, I haven't written about it very frequently, but I determined to open on certain places with this essay because I think that, first of all, we're living through an extraordinary time. The UFO thesis has gone mainstream. And this essay was one that I wrote back in 2019. It was the summer of 2019 after I had just attended a panel at the Guggenheim Museum here in New York City on UFOs of all things, and it was unprecedented. It was probably, certainly the first time in my lifetime, in my adult lifetime, that any major, major cultural institution here in the city had had a a public panel on a paranormal topic, and the place was packed. And uh, afterwards, the curator, uh, Troy Therian, who's quite a brilliant man, came up to me and he said, hey, let me ask you a question. At what point do you think it is going to become intellectually embarrassing in our culture to deny the validity of the UFO question? And I thought for a moment, I said, you know, really honestly, right now, right at this instant, you know, summer of 2019, 
uh, just at that time, there had already been some Pentagon video disclosures and that stuff built, and it's built ever since. And we don't know what UFOs are, but to deny that it's a live question is absurd. I and mean, there's no intellectually serious figure in our culture who would do that. Uh, you know, to say it's swamp gas, it's, you know, somebody's imagination, oh, it's little green men. You know, it's a very, very live question in our culture and will likely remain so for for some time. So what excites me about that is that when we start to see this upending of the world that we were educated was real and, and defensible growing up, we start to realize possibilities within ourselves as well. Now, for example, one of the things I write about in uncertain places, and this is a contention that's made by my friend Jacques Vallée, who I think is probably our greatest living investigator of UFOs and is also a brilliant computer scientist. And Jacques made the observation many, many years ago, um, probably going back to the late 60s, early 70s, and I don't think it's really changed, that within our current models of reality, it is easier to explain uh, ETs or UFOs as uh, interdimensional rather than extraterrestrial. Both present us with a big problem in terms of models, but the interdimensional model is perhaps easier for us to work with and fuller in terms of evidence that feeds into it versus the extraterrestrial model, which is really, really hard because these distances are difficult to even conceive of. And of course, we have theories like so-called cosmic wormholes and things like that that are models of reality that would allow us to collapse enormous distances. But those are just theories, as is string theory for that matter. But there might be more at the back of string theory in terms of our current body of knowledge. And if, if, if we're going for the simplest answer that covers all the bases, interdimensionality probably beats out extraterrestriality. And so that's the, that's the thesis that I develop in that essay. And what does that say about us? Because if, if there is this existence of these interdimensional winks at us, let's say, then, then we are capable of gaining glimpses of these things. And as such, we are capable in some way of participating in them. So it, it certainly says something about the potentials of our psyche. You know, the idea that, that it all somehow, I mean, I'm torn on a personal level between the idea that like, on one hand, I don't want all the mysteries to be connected to each other because maybe it's cool that they're all different things and I don't understand any of them, you know? On the other hand, of course, I guess when I say something like I don't want to this to be the case, that that is exposing, of course, the kind of romance and mystique and, and allure and all the things that we do when we craft stories we tell ourselves, right? So I'm, I'm, I try to be pretty open about that. I feel like you do too, to some degree. But... um. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Please go ahead. Oh, yeah. but 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 when I th but when I think about when I think about the idea that like we're living in this, you have written and and write in this that that although you were very uh, you resisted doing so for a while, but you sort of think maybe we're seeing some sort of signs of a of a third wave occult revival, and that we're we're inching towards something where I guess what I'm getting at is. It's very clear that a lot of the old stories have lost their potency, whether or not that yep. is, uh, you know, uh, uh, and that some of the, if we want to put it in sort of mystical or occult terms, you know, 
It seems like some of the gods that we've oriented our society around, they seem to be weakening and potentially uh, getting ready to blink out of existence. We're seeing truly extreme, you know, uh, defense of those old models uh, in terms of, you know, people's rights being stripped away and all of that. But nonetheless, I do believe that it's a pretty clear sign that what used to work just simply doesn't work anymore. And it, and in this moment with the UFO thesis uh, being as, as mainstreamed as it is with a general uh, embrace of the occult, you know, uh, by pop culture, it really does present sort of a tantalizing idea that maybe we're on the verge of writing some new stories together. Does that does that speak to you at all? Oh, it totally does. And and I'm not sure that I would have said that a year ago, you know, to be honest, or two years ago or something like that. But I do think we're seeing signs for some of the very things that you were just enumerating of there being some sort of a third wave occult revival. Now, speaking in terms of recent times, fairly recent times, we had an occult revival in the late 19th century, thanks to Eliphas Levi, thanks to Madame H.P. Blavatsky, thanks to people who were kind of bringing occult considerations to the forefront again. And a lot of artists, intellectuals, and seekers got interested in this. And then I would say the Woodstock generation brought another phase of it. And suddenly there was a popularization of uh, Vedic ideas, yoga, Zen, meditation, witchcraft, psychedelia, all kinds of Eastern traditions, different anarchic traditions. Anton LaVey wrote the Satanic Bible and so forth. And so I would say that was the second wave. And for years and years, I've resisted talking about a third wave because I just didn't see it. You know, every Halloween, journalists call me up and this is the one time a year where they want to know my point of view about something. And it must be Halloween, you know, it's September 19th and now I'm being asked what I think about Ouija boards, you know. And, and, and the line of questioning is always the same. It's always, well, you know, is there an occult revival going on? And is it because of economic insecurity or social uncertainty or shifting domestic roles? And I, I roll my eyes because I think to myself, well, gee, when has there ever been a generation that didn't feel it was going through these things? Mm -hmm. And there have been generations that have gone through a great deal worse than we're currently going through. The World War I generation, I mean, my God, you know, it's like we're talking about a, a, a war, a pandemic that, that killed tens of millions of people at a time when the world's population was smaller. And anyway, you can pull examples from any point in history, but I doubt there's been a single generation that didn't feel itself on a precipice of some kind. And some of these previous generations were in fact on, 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 on a precipice, and this, this is a matter of grave seriousness. And so I feel the occult more or less has been an evergreen, and I don't like to speak in terms of revivals or paradigm shifts, but for some of the reasons you enumerated, I do feel like we're in that place because I think the mainstreaming of the UFO question is setting subtle tremors throughout our society that we haven't yet come to terms with the, the realization of. I mean, the fact that you can turn on a talk show and there's Barack Obama and there's Bill Clinton talking about UFOs in a very, very ingenuous way. And I think to myself, you know, Jimmy Carter would talk about stuff like that and he would get brutally uh, made fun of and mocked, including by writers who should know better. And today, the genie is out of the bottle. And this discussion is part of our mainstream firmament, firmament and I don't think we've felt the full effects of that just yet. 
Also, we're wrestling mightily with questions of artificial intelligence right now, and I don't think our society has done any kind of a complete job of even defining what intelligence is, what consciousness is, what awareness is. And this is going to place us in front of a kind of identity crisis as a society. Now, several weeks ago, it was in the news that an engineer at Google got himself suspended by claiming that uh, a, a chat program that Google had created was sentient, had intelligence. And again, I was frustrated because what's our definition of intelligence? Now, we for a generation have had a field, uh, a, a new uh, field in neuroscience called neuroplasticity. And neuroplasticity demonstrates, and this has been true for about 30 years, demonstrates through brain scans that your thoughts, whatever those are, alter the gray matter of your brain, alter the, right. uh, 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 the neural pathways through which electrical impulses travel in your brain. And the founder of the field, a clinical psychiatrist at UCLA named Jeffrey Schwartz, has very ingenuously and, and I think very bravely made the statement that everyone accepts the data from this field, but no one accepts the implications. And the implications are mind over matter, to put it in the simplest of terms. Sure. So if there's an extra physical or measurably causative quality to intelligence, which is exactly what's suggested by the data from neuroplasticity, then that has to inform our definition of artificial intelligence. So is there an extra physical component to artificial intelligence? And then that brings to the fore the ever controversial topic of psychical research or ESP research. Now I dedicate a really substantial chapter in Daydream Believer to developments in psychical research over the past several generations, and the data is absolutely extraordinary. It's also deeply controversial, and it is countered at every single turn by a cohort of professional skeptics who I personally believe are deeply cynical, even to the point of disingenuousness. And I lay out that case as ably as I am capable in that chapter, and I think it would be difficult for even a skeptically minded person to come away from that chapter saying that there aren't legitimate questions posed by the body of replicable data we've assembled around the ESP effect. So all of this starts to come together into if not one spool, at least a common conversation that there are extant forces, call it metaphysical, call it extra-physical, that are greater than we've understood. And when we find ourselves, we as a human community, find ourselves on the precipice of those types of questions, and th these questions tend to seem to be building in relevance, UFOs, artificial intelligence, neuroplasticity, ESP research, plus other things that are going on and the challenges being presented to us by quantum mechanics, interpretations of quantum mechanics, right. string theory we were talking about earlier and so forth. It does suggest that our conception of what it means to be human may be in flux. And when you're experiencing that kind of flux, there's probably a, a, a very serious revival or, or reignition, re-upping of, of metaphysical questions, esoteric questions, occult questions. So I do think it's real. I do think we're 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 just at the at the at the threshold of experiencing. Hey, Transmissions listeners, are you a musical artist or in a band, and you're just not sure how to get started sharing your music with the world? 
I want to tell you about DistroKid. DistroKid makes music distribution fun, and uh, here's the important part. It makes it easy with unlimited uploads and artists like yourself keeping 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million-plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music onto Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. DistroKid has just launched a new iPhone app, which allows you to upload your tunes, earn royalties, check your streaming stats, and add lyrics, credits, and metadata. Everything you need to do to get your music out there and resonating with listeners around the world. Head over to distrokid.com backslash VIP backslash Aquarium Drunkard to get started now. Transmissions listeners can enjoy 30% off their first year's membership. That's distrokid.com backslash VIP backslash Aquarium Drunkard. Head over to DistroKid and get your sounds shared with your listeners. I think we see right now you could you could remove sort of metaphysics from the conversation entirely if you wanted, and you would still see that our our norms, our our notions of identity, our notions of you know sexual and gender expression, uh, mm-hmm. all, all of these these questions are it, it does it feels like everything's up for grabs in a certain sense, and I mean that not in a negative way necessarily, although uh, powerful forces will grab and 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 you know do what they always do try to maintain mm-hmm. power as much as possible you know be it mm-hmm. religious institutions or governmental institutions any anything like that but what i find fascinating is this like it it, it almost it, it feels so so non-controversial to say we're in a time of just massive flux as a as a you know and 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 granted people have always felt that or or, or maybe most people have felt something like that for a lot of history, a lot of human history. But there, it really does feel like something's happening, you know? Oh, there's no question. I mean, like, like you said, sure, we could strip metaphysical out of the equation. Just the fact that we're emerging from this unprecedented lockdown, unprecedented in our lifetime, yeah. is extraordinary. People don't want to go back to work. People are, and, 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 and more power to them. You know, we're asking questions. Do I have to be in an office? Do I have to be in a cubicle? Do I have to be in an office park? Why can't I sit in my pajamas all day? You know, I mean, these are questions that utopian socialists in the 19th century wanted people to ask. And now we're asking them. And and I'm not suggesting that, that, that some kind of blissful outcome is in the making by any means, but <laughs> it is this moment of interval where we're able to ask, um, you know, do, do I need all these things? Do I need all these accoutrements that that that, that I, I was told were absolutely necessary to life? Do I need a commute? You know, I have a friend, um, a very very gifted designer, who uh, told his. Uh, uh, bosses that he felt he could do more work and better work for them if he worked from home. And they said, okay. And it's transformed his relationship with his kids, the time that, that he's able to spend uh, doing his work and 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 not having to factor in a, a, a two-hour, 15-minute commute every single day. And, 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 and these things do make a difference in people's lives. So even if we were talking strictly on the level of, of 
materialism, you know, broadly defined, we'd still feel ourselves on on some sort of a, a, a precipice, if not the turning of a corner. Yeah. Then you add in all the other stuff, and and we're in for. Something. Add in Bigfoot, and it's <laughs> fucking freaky. Yeah. You know? Exactly. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I don't. Uh, you know, I I uh, <laughs> on the on the topic of this 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 precipice this this shift um you know one of the first book i read of yours was uh a cult america and so i am am well aware that among the radical free thinkers of the day you know be it uh socialists or various progressive movements all of these things Mm -hmm. there's a there's a strong occult uh uh undergirding to a lot of that and and a strong occult affinity and an expression of those progressive ideals through the language of the occult. Um, what I wonder is if, you know, on that topic of just usefulness, you know, what is it about the occult that provides us the language to have the conversations that we want to have when we're talking about dramatically changing, you know, and, and do you feel like there's like a sort of we talked about Bob Dylan writing the, the, the zeitgeist wave, you know? I mean, is there a is there a zeitgeisty part of that? Does the occult simply, is it just part of the, the, the ingredient list, you know? Do, do you know what I mean? Well, it's, these are really interesting questions. One of my efforts in Uncertain Places is to make the case, which I argue in the introduction to the book, that there's no natural... Uh, exclusivity between the occult and modernist philosophy. Uh, Modernist philosophy holds as its basic principle that there are knowable and detectable antecedents behind everyday events of life. So for Freud, for example, that was uh, childhood trauma and sexual repression. Uh, it all depends on the field that you're working in. For Pasteur, that was that was germs and microbes. For a Darwin, that was unseen biological processes and and evolution. For Marx, that was economics and inevitable cycles of a political or social class. For William James, that was self-image. Uh, for Einstein, it was time and relativity in terms of discerning the the behavior of objects in space. So and on and on and on. So the the modernist ideal is that there are unseen but detectable antecedents behind overt events. And for that reason, modernism, I think just as a matter of cultural habit, has frequently looked askance at religion, spirituality, the occult. I define the spiritual simply as the extra-physical. No more than that. And so, and I'm as much an empiricist as anybody else, which is why I'm so interested in ESP research, for example. Some people might scratch their heads and say, why does Mitch spend, you know, so much space in Daydream Believer defending his very, very long chapter, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I guess I'm I'm as much of an empiricist as as any venture capitalist or scientist or anybody else. I I have the conviction that that the occult can be part of the modernist project. It doesn't have to be. It, it still holds relevance in the life of the individual seeker, but but that's something I'm just personally interested in. And now there are areas that were associated exclusively with spirituality that modernist culture has has validated and has sort of welcomed in in a certain sense welcome to the table one of them is meditation whether it be transcendental meditation to which i'm personally dedicated whether it be different forms of mindfulness or tibetan meditation i 
would be hard pressed to, to name a single social sciences journal or medical journal that concerns itself with such things that hasn't run articles of juried studies demonstrating the effects psychologically, phys physiologically of various forms of meditation. So that's a, that's a given. The stress response, mindfulness, TM, I mean, these things, these things are plainly demonstrated to have physiological and, and psychological benefits. And then you have psychedelia, which has now come back in as well. I, I can't believe I neglected to mention that as we were talking about a, a third wave occult revival. I mean, microdosing and, and other forms of, of, of therapeutic psychedelic use is all the rage right now, and that's only building. And it's very interesting because that too was something that was a very verboten topic at one time. And to some degree, it was embraced by the beats. It was embraced by the early hippies. Uh, it was embraced by people like Richard Alpert or um, Leary, you know, who were part of mainstream, the mainstream academic medical establishment who said, wait a minute, you know, there's something else here. And so I think that psychedelia as well uh, has kind of come roaring back in. And, and that's been valid, I would say largely validated. And so these are, are just two areas where I think that you can now discuss these things, you know, with a straight face on NPR, you know, my topics, not yet, not yet. And I keep pushing the margins on those topics because frankly, I don't want to get too comfortable talking about these things on NPR. You know, I mean, I remember I, I went on an NPR show to talk about my book once simple idea, which is a history of the positive mind movement. There was a pre-interview where there were three producers on the phone and I'm saying to myself, what am I in the witness protection program? Yeah. You know, do you want to, do you want to put like a shadow over me and disguise my voice? I mean, is this how dangerous this is that we need to have three producers do a pre-interview with me? And, and they left out the hottest stuff. They left out the most interesting stuff, but you know, this is the cultural divide that I'm talking about where modernist culture views spirituality, religion, the occult with suspicion. And maybe that's a good thing. You know, maybe I don't want to be too comfortable with a place at the table. Maybe I should never have a place at the table. And I'm always trying to push the margins on these things, not to be provocative, but just to share in public the questions that I harbor in private. Yeah. 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 That's, that's fascinating. And it's a, and it's a great, you know, whether or not this, these ideas will ever have sort of a seat at the table. I mean, it's called, the occult for a reason, right? I mean, it's yeah. the hidden, you know, maybe, <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> that, but that said, another thing that draws me to your work so much is the transparency that you're talking about. So, you know, that's, that's always one area where, of course, there's a hidden part of it. There's an internal part of it. There's a personal part of it, you know, and that's something that I think you read about very eloquently that you have for, you know, but it's the pro it's the project of your life in one sense or another you've built the, your own system you've built your own basically sort of religious system right is that a fair way to put it actually yeah i'm comfortable with that i call it anarchic magic because i i want to imply that it, it's it's very individually based it's it's something that you know anybody can just just check out tear up throw it out devise their own system but but yeah i i i embrace that kind of individualistic approach you know, I, I, I've it's come up on this podcast a handful of times. I've mentioned it, you know, but I grew up very, uh, very, very religious and, and in a very uh, sort of uh, 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 I just heard the, the writer Matt Cardin discussing this on the strange uh, 
a weird studies podcast actually that we came from uh-huh. we came from the same sort of denomination a, a non-denominational sect mm-hmm. but uh mm-hmm. the stone campbell restorationist movement which is a very very you know uh but often very literalist sort of thing you know so i see so i came from this thing and then at some point you know those it stopped ringing true for me i had to figure out mm-hmm. my own thing mm-hmm. and a couple of years ago i was talking with my friend Ken Lane from Desert Oracle, and mm-hmm. and and I said something like, you know, yeah, it's like it's sometimes I feel like I'm creating my own religion, and he was like, well, of course you are. That's what we do. You have to, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I think of that as like such a that's a freeing thing to some degree because, uh, you know, there's a tension in your work that exists between the communal and the and the individual, you know, as is with everybody's, but. There's a part of it that's extremely personal, you know, and I think that you yeah. you write very eloquently about that. And 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 I'm curious why it is that you know, you you aren't afraid of the term satanist. Uh and mm-hmm. uh, in your great recent conversation with Duncan Trussell, there was some good differentiation between the Church of Satan as it might be the formal, you know, uh mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then what you practice. But I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about how how you got comfortable with Satan, I guess. Sure. <laughs> That's a great title for the podcast, How I Got Comfortable with Satan. And um, it's interesting. It relates to a lot of what we've been talking about in a, in a certain way, because, you know, I mean, apropos of ideas from the occult getting picked up in the mainstream, let me just say Satanism is not the new witchcraft. Witchcraft has sort of been cleansed and, 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 and made palatable to a, a great swath of the public. It's still dangerous, but you can have a hero in a TV show, be a witch, a hero in a movie, a hero in a Broadway play, you know, be a witch. And so we are a long ways away from Satanism being the new witchcraft. But I do talk about it simply because it's personally relevant to me. And that is the only, uh, those are the only grounds that I use in terms of selection of subject matter. I'm not interested in provoking, shocking, pushing buttons. I have zero interest in it. In fact, I don't really like doing it, but my search and my work are the same. And if something is personally relevant to me, that feeds directly into my writing and speaking and other efforts. So, I began to feel in the fall of 2017, maybe that, and I write about this, I think, in uncertain places, that my search was becoming somewhat stale. I heard myself repeating certain things too much, and I started to sound a little bit too much like somebody who was drawing upon the same catechism, and I didn't like it. I don't think I took a full plunge into that, but I was dancing around the edges, and I I could tell. And I read a book by a brilliant writer from Stockholm named Carl Abrahamson called A Culture. And Carl, in that book, uh, provided a chapter on Anton LaVey, the founder of the Church of Satan. And it's funny that we're talking about this because, as it happens uh, tomorrow, I'm recording an audio track to an episode of the Shudder television show Cursed Films about the, the, the episode dedicated to Rosemary's Baby and, and Church of Satan and related culture. Uh, Jay Shield, the director, and I are doing this audio track uh, tomorrow. So wow. this must be in the air. Um, but Carl's chapter was very moving to me because he was brave enough and, and enterprising enough and insightful enough to look at Anton LaVey as 
an outsider artist, not get caught up in all this sensationalism and nonsense and isn't it evil and isn't it terrible. I, I don't think Anton LaVey so much has ever swatted a fly in his life. You know, it's astonishing to me that this world that we live in with God knows how many catastrophes that any one of your listeners could very ably enumerate Anton LaVey, a goateed artist from San Francisco, you know, whose 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 exploration was 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 public, was provocative, was philosophical, uh, uh, could be identified as this figure of of evil. He had a very particular point of view. It's not my point of view. Anton was an atheist. I'm not an atheist, but I felt that Carl did brilliant work and did some very heavy lifting intellectually in trying to explain what it was that Anton was after. It wasn't Aleister Crowley, it wasn't Ayn Rand, it was kind of like a more ritualized version of an objectivist philosophy that incorporated ceremony, ritual, image. Now, all those things are very meaningful to me personally, but I do have a very decided metaphysical point of view. And so that became a leaping off point for me. And I began to arrive at and articulate privately and publicly a different, more esoteric, and I hope defensible definition of what the satanic can actually mean in Western culture, because it's woven into all of our parables and myths and works of art from antiquity up through the Romantic era and beyond. And the Romantic who have very deeply inspired me, Lord, Lord Byron, Mary Wollstonecraft, Shelley, Percy by Shelley, and so forth, William Blake, um, their view of the satanic was, was it, it had a metaphysical component to it, and they understood the satanic, as I do, as a force of usurpation, radical questioning, overturning individuality, emancipation. They saw the serpent in the garden not as someone who undermined Eve, but who emancipated Eve. And to me, that's the esoteric understory of the satanic that has not been understood in our culture. And so I'm trying to reclaim that story, reclaim that term. I am probably tilting at a windmill that is that is too great. I don't expect there to be any reformation around Satanism in my lifetime. But this is my private search, and so I share it. And, and one could say, as I've said to myself, as friends and loved ones have said to me, do you have to use that? Must you use that language? Must you use that language? You know, as Duncan Trussell uh, joked, uh, I think this was off microphone, but I shared it on Twitter. <laughs> He said, Lucifer is like diet Satan, you know, <laughs> only Duncan could put it that way. You know, must I use that language? And the fact is, I come from the Abrahamic tradition. I, I grew up Jewish. I had an Orthodox bar mitzvah, the Abrahamic tradition being Judaism, Christianity, Islam. It's the language. It's the world that I come from. I draw upon these reference points. And that's been my decision, and that's been my challenge, and that's been my wish to share in public what I'm experimenting with in private. It, it has been enriching to my life. It has been helpful to my life, and I, I share it with other seekers. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I, I, I think that... Uh, <clears throat> I think... I'm struck by the fact that you helped uh, you helped restore the term New Age to some level of respectability. So 
I think I think you're just getting cocky now, Mitch. You're just a little bit. Yeah, right. You're just like, <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm all for one. I mean, exactly. I'm not, no, I haven't exactly. I haven't quite gotten there, and I may never get there. But 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 again, you know, in a way, maybe it's good never to get there because I, I have to be real careful. You know, as I was feeling back in 2017, I have to be careful. You know, I, I don't want to be invited to the national prayer breakfast. You know, or if I do get invited to the national prayer breakfast, I'll I'll go, and you know, maybe I'll have a good time. But I'm not campaigning for that. And I got to be really careful. I don't want to be the first occultist who gets invited to the National Prayer Breakfast, you know? Yeah. Because it, when you start to go for that kind of professional respectability, you you lose something and you can lose the freedom of your search. Yeah. No, no, for sure. For sure. Which is why I feel like when I hear you on Coast to Coast AM or whatever, it's like I hear a lot of things on Coast to Coast AM that I that I don't agree with or that that kind of kind of rattle me or sometimes frankly I, f- I find myself very opposed to that said yeah. that said the freedom um that's required for having the kind of conversations you want to have requires finding alternative oh, i think i lost you there our image froze am i back oh i lost you there for a second but could you repeat that I'm back? we froze yeah yeah, yeah. right uh, you were you were saying something about stuff on coast but but i lost you yeah well i was just saying that so often i find myself you know i i hear things i i disagree with or oppose you know but finding channels to have honest conversations and 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 places to have them is a difficult thing you know and yeah. so so I, I I like the thin line you're walking, Mitch. I, I feel like you're 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 quite you're quite uh you're quite adept at 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 moving in the worlds that you're moving. Where you you are a person who's been uh, published in respectable respectable outlets, you know. Um, yeah, and and I have to be careful of that. You know, I I I have to be frank. You know, I, I yearn for uh, I yearn for professional respectability, and at the same time. I have to really, really watch that in myself because it it can cost you. It can cost you. And once you get a taste of professional respectability, you want another taste and you want a whole meal. And then you want to be able to dine out on that every night. And when you do that, it, it, it can it can change your search. It can change your search. I've witnessed that in myself and I have rejected it. You know, I, I don't want to compromise the language and the terms that I use, I always try to interact with people in a deeply respectful way. I'm again, I'm I'm not interested in just playing the role of provocateur. I'm interested in an authentic exchange. And what does an exchange mean? And that's that's what I I'm drawn to very deeply. And 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 at the same time, I don't want to compromise in terms of using language that's not mine or pretending to disrespect figures who in fact I respect or pretending to respect figures who in fact I disrespect. You know, I respect Oprah Winfrey. You know, I've never been on her her programs. I don't expect to be invited. But when somebody from the opinion page of a newspaper wants me to make a snarky remark about Oprah Winfrey because for some reason lettered people are supposed to not respect Oprah. I think that's absolutely preposterous. I think she's done a lot of good things, frankly. And and then there's a lot of mainstream uh, religionists who I find very boring and 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 I think are just reciting out of a uh, off of a menu or a script somewhere. And I don't want to make compromises to get my message out. And I. I, I, I want to freely admit that I'm interested in mainstream approbation, but I don't want that to compromise me. And I have to always watch for that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tricky, it's a tricky <clears throat> negotiation, a fraught, yeah. fraught territory. But 
Uh, you know, Mitch, it's it's been so so great getting the chance to sit down and talk with you about all this stuff. I do, since he's come up a few times, I guess we do need to touch on Bigfoot. So do you think Bigfoot... <laughs> Do you think that Bigfoot is an extra-dimensional being? Because I hear that I hear that pretty frequently these days. Uh, I I think it's very possible. <laughs> in the essay that we were talking about earlier, that opens uncertain places, I, I group in Bigfoot and leprechauns and all these things. Just is it is it possible that we we have this record? We have I won't say we we have all this testimony. Okay, that goes back now. You know, uh, uh, to Teddy Roosevelt's time, he had a Bigfoot story himself, which was quite good, and um, and 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 over time. A testimony does become a record. So we have a record. And I value records very much. In fact, we rely upon records uh, of testimony more often than we'd like to admit. You know, my shrink gives me some medication. How are you feeling? Well, what is that? Is that very scientific? It's like, I'm feeling better. Are you happy? You know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, we evaluate pain. We evaluate emotional pain and physical pain based on testimonies of record. I mean, this is what we do. So the fact that we have these testimonies behind an anomalous topic doesn't mean that suddenly this is downgraded now to anecdote. It's mere anecdote. You know, these yeah. are testimonies from capable individuals. And so, yes, I, I lump it together with this question of otherworldly phenomena and sightings. Is it possible we're getting a, a glimpse, a, a wink, an experience of something that's outside of our normal uh, uh, dimensional confines? And um, this is a, 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 a very, very big question that opens up into a very, very big vista of which we know very, very little. But I feel we're at a time and place where we can ask that question. Well, that's a perfect place to end. Mitch, thanks so much for hanging out with us again on Transmissions. Pleasure. It's always a, a blast having you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. for being here with us on Transmissions. Uh, it's always so much fun when I get to do these far out episodes. Uh, I know we've got a lot of competition for your ears on the internet, so we're honored that you've opted to listen to our program today. Mitch's book, Daydream Believer, is out now. Uncertain Places, Essays on Occult and Outsider Experiences is out October 18th. You can pre-order it now, of course. And you can also support this podcast by checking us out on Patreon. Your support helps us keep making the show. Transmissions is part of the TalkHouse Podcast Network. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I write, host, and produce the show. Our audio is edited by Andrew Horton, who also provided music this episode. Our show is executive produced by Justin Gage, Aquarium Drunkard's founder. Don't miss his Aquarium Drunkard show every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. PST on Sirius XMU. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe if you dig transmissions, and of course, share the episodes wherever you want to post about stuff you're into. Next week on the show, I am joined by experimental composer Sherry Knight, who joins me to discuss her innovative and experimental recordings uh, done in the Pacific Northwest in the 1980s. Back soon, this transmission is concluded.